Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Well, hello, all you listeners. Welcome to yet another edition of Bibliophiles. I am your stand-in host, your backup host, your auxiliary host, Ian, joined today by the rest of the crew, my dear old dad. Hey. My mom. Hello, hello. (laughs) And my wife. Hello. (laughs) Glad to be with you all today. The reason I'm hosting you loyal listeners will probably know already is that we are today engaged in an episode entitled, What Are We Reading? Maybe we should edit the title today, though, to reflect uh, the truth. What have we read recently? Isn't that so, Dad? Oh, yes. I, yes. It's not that I'm in the middle of this. It's that I you just actually have it. successfully reached the end of the novel we're going to discuss today and That's can right. be relied upon to give us a uh, wholly well-read opinion on it. Yes. <laughs> What's the book? The book is Hard Times by Charles Dickens. Did you enjoy this book? Thereby hangs a tale, Ian. The truth is, <laughs> I'm going to have to take a minute and answer that question. Because, first of all, it should be known that I am a huge Charles Dickens fan. I mm. love Charles Dickens. I think he's the greatest novelist of the 19th century, certainly the greatest novelist of the Victorian period. And he's on my list for greatest novelist of the 19th century. And I'm predisposed to love everything about a Dickens novel. We know this about you. Oh, yes. So do the listeners. And? Well, that's a logical place to start. Maybe there's some people that don't know that about me yet. Isn't that possible? Fair enough. Fair enough. So anyway, I was expecting when I went to read Hard Times, wonderful characterization, evocative English settings, maybe a London slum or two, if you know what I mean. And I was expecting a twisty-turny plot with with a faintly moralistic theme, you know, at the end that... That, that could draw my heart, as it were, upwards to contemplate the nobility of man. Dang. And, and for this reason, I was going to, to love hard times. And, I, and I'm disappointed, I got to tell you. I, I didn't like it as much as I thought I would. So anyway, that's it. It's, it gets me, it, I, get, I give it a thumbs down, actually. Whoa, okay, hold on. So after all of that... Dickens praising that just went on. You actually not only did, didn't like this book, but wouldn't recommend it. I don't know. I mean, it, it, I think everyone should read everything Dickens wrote because it's because if you're participating in the Western literary tradition, you should know Charles Dickens. As I, I'd say the same thing of Dickens that I would say of Shakespeare. That if if Dickens wrote it, it's probably worth reading. So I don't know that I would say skip Hard Times, but I wouldn't put it at the top of my list of of. Uh, Great Victorian novels are certainly not the top of my list of Dickens novels, no. Wow. Well, that's a thrilling start to the discussion. I find myself curious. Well, I'll tell you, the, 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 the main reason is that 
Well, maybe the, maybe the thing to do is to kind of summarize a story for those listeners who haven't read it. And since maybe if you take my word for it, you're not going to go read it, as you'll probably tell you what happens, right? So you're not yeah, completely give me the version. Are you going to do a spoiler and everything? Well, it was published in 1854. So that's, you know, that's pushing 175 years old. Maybe. Are you saying there can't be spoilers for books that were written long ago? I don't know what I'm saying. Maybe I'll, t- I'll try not to give it away. Okay. okay? But, the, but the book takes place in an industrial town in England in the first half of the 19th century as the Industrial Revolution is getting underway in that country. And the interests of capital and mechanization and industry are arrayed against the interests of labor and hmm. As representatives of capitalism and industry, you have, relatively speaking, rich, independent, powerful men. And then as relatives of, or as representatives of labor, you have, relatively speaking, poor, powerless men. And the story takes place in this town where these two factions are arrayed against each other. And it's a fictional town called Coke Town, a reference to the minerals by which iron and steel are made or something like that. Mm. And it's a, it's a really evocative description of the town. It basically exists in a cloud of smoke and the cloud is impenetrable and it's a filthy industrialized smoke and it lays on everything and all the characters breathe it and they become features of it. You know, they become besmirched by it and pretty soon they're indistinguishable from this cloud of smoke and inside the town, there are uh, there's first of all a man named Thomas Gradgrind. And as Wait, soon as I on. no no that's his right name is what his name is Gradgrind. <laughs> and as soon as I read his name for the first time, I thought this is going to be a Dickens novel that meets all my expectations because that is a classic Dickensian name. And before his name I, was Gradgrind, his and name he was, lived in a giant puff of smoke. Yes. And his name was Gradgrind. And before he even did anything or said anything, I knew what he was going to do and what he was going to say just right. because of his name. Right. Oh. And it turns out that he, he runs a model school does Gradgrind. Mm. And the model school is designed to, to benefit the young with the type of education that will make them productive members of the mechanized industrial society that oh, has wow. made him rich and of which he is a proponent and an advocate. So and is, it, is it the essential education in um, what to think and when to think instead of how to think? Uh, yeah, you, you might say that if you were um, if you were 100 years later looking back on Dickens. But at the time, the, the, the terms that he put it in, in a famous line from Hard Times, Thomas Gradgrind says, what's needed is facts. Facts Hmm. and facts alone. Hmm. Give them facts. That's what you do for an education. And so he's got this little, um, the child of a, the the waif little orphan child of a circus performer in his class named Sissy Jupe, another great Dickensian name. (laughs) And she has an imagination and she has a, um, a, a sensitive emotional bent. And he asks her about a horse and he asks her to describe a horse and she tries to describe her experience with horses because of her experience in the circus and her feelings about horses. And he basically says, that's all stuff and nonsense. Somebody else describe a horse. And this other kid in the class gives an anatomical and taxonomic definition of a horse. A horse is a quadruped of you know a certain number of kilograms or whatever. And Gradgrind prefers this desiccated factual definition of a horse to Sissy's more evocative literary, emotional, 
description of an experience. And that kind of becomes a, like a great setup. Oh, it's it beautiful. I mean, there it's, well, this is what I would say about it. It's, it's, it's clear. <laughs> Does it read more like nonfiction than fiction? Well, it reads more like something than fiction. <laughs> yes. Dickens, could it be that Mr. Dickens has never really had a problem hopping up on a soapbox? This is this is my main complaint with novel. This happened. This horse thing happens in chapter one, like paragraph two or something, and I I can already <laughs> see the whole thing laid out before me before before the chapter's even over. What we find out then after is that Gradgrind has two children, Louisa and Tom, that have been raised with this kind of education. And we get mm. more specifics on it. His education is explicitly designed to stamp out the emotional side of human nature and replace it with a, a mechanized, factual, robotic side so that people can grow up and become factory workers and be productive in the industrial society and his own two children louisa and tom have been given this kind of education and they of course are painted as emotionally stunted um dissatisfied with their lot in life um sad and morose to the point of of pitiable pitiful extreme so that you think oh my goodness how can two people as as sad and and morose as louisa and tom even exist and again, you can see it coming because Gradgrind is trying to create, what do you call it, uh, exemplary members Automaton. of society. Yeah, he's going to create these exemplary people, and you can see that it's going to it's going to backfire on him. And so, Josiah Bounderby uh, is a friend of Thomas Gradgrind, who um, is a business associate, who ends up taking on Gradgrind's children to give them opportunities to advance in. Uh, industrial society. He takes on Tom as a as a uh, associate and a, kind of a factotum in his business, and he eventually applies to Gradgrind for Louisa's hand in marriage, even though she's something like thirty years his junior, and explains to Gradgrind using his own rhetoric that there's nothing statistically wrong with marrying someone thirty years your junior, and it has been proven to produce beneficial results for the race or something like that. And so Gradgrind buys this logic and basically sells his daughter Louisa to Bounderby as a child bride. Ugh. And the result is that both Louisa and Tom turn out horribly. Louisa falls prey um, to the temptation of adultery when a smooth-talking ne'er-do-well sidles in and pays her a little attention. And she, um, she never does leave her husband, but she runs home to her father, uh, a broken and bitter daughter and accuses him of ruining her life by stamping out her emotions and her true human spirit with this horrible education. And then his son, Tom, uh, becomes a thief and orchestrates a bank robbery and to try and um, make a living. So at what point did you start wondering if Dickens ever struggled to find a table uh, sturdy enough to hold up his hand. Well, the problem with this novel is that you, I'll tell you when I found that was reading the title page because the title page says hard times. And then the subtitle is for these times. <laughs> <laughs> that's really deep. So this isn't a novel. It's a screed. Yes. That's the problem. And it, it's, it's too moralistic to be literary in my opinion. Dickens, mm. uh, Dickens is that for me. Well, he's known to, for his social criticism, for his ability to take stock of the, of the English society that he lived in and, and force his readers to think about irregularities in it 
to think about structural problems in it, to think about abuses that are going on, and to think about them even from a moral perspective. But in his other novels, he's such a master at doing that gently so that the reader has those questions. The questions appear to originate inside the reader's mind and heart. Mm-hmm. They're coming from outside in hard times. They're coming from the the sledgehammer that Dickens is wielding. And it, it crosses the line for me um, between art and kind of rhetoric, between mm. literary art and sermonizing. What point in his career did he write this? This is 1854. So it's kind of right in the middle. It's his 10th novel. He so wrote, he should have known better is what you're saying? Well, he wrote better ones after. This is before Great better. Expectations. Hmm. I mean, maybe maybe not all of your novels can be the greatest novel ever. Fair well, did enough. he write good ones beforehand? Is, is he still working through something? Uh, that's a good question. That's a qu- good question. I don't have the, the list of his novels up in front of me, but I'd like to know. That's interesting. I'm surprised to hear this because along the lines of what you were saying a second ago, it seems to me Dickens' main strength is characterization. And maybe that's why you say he's so gentle in the points that he's making. Yeah. What he's really doing is writing about people. Right. And um, and he never fails to present us with a compassionate view of people, no matter how broken. But in this story, it seems like people are um, are foils for him to play his games on his, his political ideas and games on instead of, of actual creatures that he's working with. Well, I think that's probably, I think I would agree with that characterization in a lot of cases. And even the characters that are the, um, the ones on the union side that are the, that are the, the wronged people. There's a guy named Stephen Blackpool, who is a, a factory worker who is, um, honest and morally upright and pure and just beaten down by the injustices of this society. And he eventually gets caught in this horrible catch-22 where he's promised not to criticize the workers' union. And so he goes to a workers' union meeting and refuses uh, to to criticize them. And so they throw him out on his ear and, and exclude him from the union. And then he goes to Bounderby, who is who is the in charge of the factory that the union works at. And he's also promised not to uh, betray one to the other. So Bounderby asks him for a faithful account of what went down in the union meeting, and he won't give it. And so Bounderby fires him. So he's ostracized from the union and fired from his job and forced to go to another town to find work. And so his, so we get this really ham-fisted, heavy-handed depiction of this guy whose moral integrity won't allow him to say an ill word or speak an untruth, getting unjustly criticized from both directions and eventually being excluded from society. Mm. And we, we want to, we want to, we're supposed to identify with him and uphold him as the as the virtuous one, but he's a, he's not relatable. Um, he's just, he's just pitiful is kind of what mm-hmm. he is. And so, and so it, we're in great expectations. You're, you're going with Pip down his every road and you're saying, Oh, I can understand how, why Pip does this because I can see myself in it. I couldn't see myself in any of the characters in hard times. Mm. And so it was a miss in some ways, at least for me. Did you think that it dealt with universals? Because I, I really, mm. when you said that you think that in all of Dickens' other stories, he deals with the issues of his time, but very gently. Um, yeah. I don't know that I agree that it's gentle treatment. He, he always attacks um, social things in mm. his novels. There's always some sort of a social commentary going on underneath, and it's often really biting. Um, uses sarcasm and the like, you know, to treat it. Yeah, you're but, right, come to think of it. 
I think that the thing that rescues it and makes it enduring instead of something that he wrote just for the people of his time is that there's always some sort of a universal the, uh, universal quality to the the themes that he's treating themselves. Right. That is really interesting. I hadn't thought of it from that angle before. And I think maybe there's something to that, that the 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 criticisms of hard times are too completely located in the political and social and economic questions of the 1850s, the English 1850s. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's not enough of universal appeal to the stuff. So I feel separated from it as I'm reading along. But it sounds it sounds like there's two different things going on to me because, and granted, I haven't read Hard Times because I read the title and thought, that sounds like a really hard time. Um, <laughs> but it seems to me that we might have two different things going on. The, the first thing we have going on is what mom just said. Maybe there's not enough attention to universals to allow the novel to really speak across the centuries. But the other thing that it strikes me is that you mentioned him giving a pat answer in a bunch of different areas instead of asking a bunch of questions and great expectations. Um, it doesn't say he doesn't suggest an answer or two, but the questions of Pip's youth and the questions of coming of age are the things that the reader is obsessed with in hard times. It sounds to me like he might be taking up the role of, of the author of a fable or the author of proverbs or something along those lines. And that maybe it's a genre problem that we have. He's got a, a book of fables masquerading as a novel. Very interesting. I wrote in my in my little short little bullet point a list of notes for this episode, questions or answers. Mm. And I, I really think that's on point that I get the I get the feeling reading hard times that Dickens has a list of 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 proclamations that he wants to make about economic and social realities that come in the form of answers to questions that may or may not be being asked. Doubtless they were being asked, but right. he is not the one asking them. What he seems to be doing is delivering answers. And I, I'm always more, more moved and more engaged and, and uh, more affected by an artist who asks the questions, at least ask the questions first. And I don't get a lot of that from this novel. Interesting. I want to, I mean, it may, in this, this episode isn't maybe for this, but I'd love to hear it. And if you guys want to do it now, let's do it. I'd love to hear a conversation about whether you're, whether it's actually the role of an artist to moralize like that. I'd love to talk about that because it's because the reception of the novel was evenly balanced at the time. And ever since between people who say this is one of Dickens great works. And I've talked to people recently who say my very favorite Charles Dickens novel is hard times. And other people who say, uh, this is a screed. This has, you know, this has more in common with a broadside than, um, than a work of art. Uh. The the edition I read is a critical edition with notes of extensive notes and references. And it's obviously been treated like a great work of art. That is the legitimate object of scholarly attention. So it's not that I've got the only perspective on this, but it's de- I think definitely a conversation worth having for sure. Hmm. I wonder, it would be interesting to read those because I wonder to the extent that people think it's his best novel if they are joining him in those assumptions hmm. and they're seeing themselves in the work, like Lewis hmm. would say. Mm-hmm. Oh, you mean having that having it land in their own, they see themselves in Josiah Bounderby or Thomas Gradgrind or Stephen Blackpool? Yeah, that that they would have taken up the same issues that Dickens does, and they're excited to see him do it. I, mm. I think you are. I think you're right about that because there are two sets of issues in the novel that are clearly 
firmly rooted in the mid 19th century, but that also do sort of have their counterparts today. The role between capital and labor, for example, obviously didn't end with the 1850s. It's the subject of Karl Marx in 1858 and every day since, right? The, the, um, uh, the re- relationship between capital and labor and the abuses of power and money that come from the capitalist side or the capital side and the plight of the worker on the other side. And obviously those issues are, if not universal, at least enduring into our own day and age. The, the abuses of industrial technology and the urge to um, destroy in order to build and you know that kind of thing. You could argue that some of those things are, are, are enduring. But then there's a whole there's another section of ideas that I think make the novel particularly relevant to people in education. And that's the whole question of what kind of education is the best one. Mm-hmm. Is a is a a fact-based, scientific, mechanized education the best one, or is a more uh, humane, literary, liberal arts type education something to be strived for? And Dickens appears to be taking up that issue right from the beginning in hard times. It, I could hear that as you were just giving me the bare outlines of the story itself. And I was surprised, I have to say, that it didn't resonate for you. Since well, you work in education well, and right. have some very strong feelings about um, the significance of the liberal arts as opposed to, um, you know, more utilitarian education. Oh, yeah. And, and and when I realized when he when I got that scene at the beginning, facts is what's wanted, facts, I thought, oh, wow, I'm going to really be able to groove with this guy because I can see where he's going. But then it was so obvious that it was it was ham-fisted, I thought. So that's, that's the reason I thought, well, there, there was no reason for chapter two because I got it already in chapter one. Mm. Mm. Should have been an essay. Yeah. Instead of how many pages? It was plenty. I wonder if that's what sets apart a, a creative or imaginative literature author from a non, from an essayist or something like that is that they enter into the project with the question without a firmly settled opinion on the issue. Mm-hmm. It's maybe leaning, but not with a full answer. Because it sounds like what you're saying is that Dickens had the answer for this one and he wanted to communicate that. But maybe a good artist is open when they sit down to write. Or at least adopts the the stance of openness as an artist. And, and I think Dickens is quoted about this one as saying, I wanted to strike the, the heaviest blow in my power. He actually says something along those lines. I wanted to strike the heaviest blow in my power. And I, I thought when I read that, those are not the words of an artist as much mm. as they are the words of a reformer or a crusader yeah. of some kind. And that's not to say that, that the two don't ever, don't ever work together. Obviously they do. One of the great impulses to art is to effect change. But um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think there's some sort of line was crossed that uh, soured it for me. Because you would have to really eliminate um, a huge number of artists from the canon if it was really true that the artist only asks the question but never um, postulates an answer. Right. Well, I guess what I was saying is that that the artist um, handles it as a complicated issue mm-hmm. with the gray areas, you know, mm-hmm. that, that he has an answer maybe in mind, but sees the problems with that answer or. Right. That, that, that art is, art is nuance, not propaganda right. is essentially what you're saying that this reads like propaganda. I, I, there aren't any two dimensional characters in hard times. There are people arrayed on one side of the line and they are a rich and powerful and B 
horrible. And then the other side of the line has poor, oppressed, and morally, um, morally wonderful people on it. And, there, and nobody, nobody crosses the line. It's two groups of people just kind of bumping up against each other until the end. So maybe it was just <laughs> simplistic in yes. his treatment of the issues. It was just simplistic. Like Emily says, it's not nuanced enough. Not nuanced. Right. Yes. Didactic. Well, and, and in terms of literary structure, too, in terms of the structure of the plot, um, it's necessary for him to, um, to put Stephen Blackpool, this morally pure, oppressed person, under uh, an amazing amount of unnecessary, no, not unnecessary, the word I'm looking for is unjust suspicion. He's accused of a bank robbery that, that really is committed by Tom Gradgrind and tries to pin it on Stephen Blackpool. And because he has to leave town, because he's been kicked out of the union and fired from his job, he has to work elsewhere, he's gone when he's accused. So now it looks like he's run away. Mm-hmm. And so they have to go find him and bring him back to Coketown so he can answer for his, the charges and clear his name. And of course, the reader wants them to want Stephen Blackpool to be found so that he can come back and clear his name and everybody can know what a great guy he is. Well, they never find him because he falls down a well and is mortally injured. He falls down a well. (laughs) And they find him at the very end of the story. They drag him up out of the well and he says, I didn't do it, and then dies. And it, I just thought, wow, this went from, and forgive me if I overreact, this went from ham-fisted to downright ridiculous. In terms of how to develop a plot and bring around its conclusion, it's almost like Dickens said, oh no, I've only got room for one more episode. I better end this now. And he has him fall down a well and die. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any significance to the well? Is it symbolic in some way? By, by a certain stretch, you can make it symbolic. It was a well that was dug by the factory to advanced some sort of factory purpose. So that's subtle. like a first novel. I mean, this sounds like yes. a guy setting out to, to be a novelist as a 15-year-old with a basic understanding of, of economics who decides to put demons on one side and perfect people on the other. It, that's what I'm trying to say. That is what I'm trying to say. And I hope that there will be people listening to this episode of Bibliophiles who will say, you are all washed up. Listen to the literary Mm. and artistic glories of hard times, because I'd really like to have that conversation. It's not true that, um, it's not true that the whole world thinks this is a ridiculous novel. Opinion is divided. Mm. So I'm, I'd be very interested to hear. Well, how about this? How about we do this? And I, and I can volunteer this because it's not volunteering anyone's time, but my own. I'm the guy who gets customer service emails that are around here. If you are a listener to Bibliophiles, and if your um, spirit rises up in revolt <laughs> within you at our characterization of this particular at my character, I'll take the blame. My characterization. Please send me a note. And here's what I want it to be. And I'm going to give you an assignment, just like I did with my writing students. You have one paragraph. And in one paragraph, I would like you to give me a succinct summary of why you think our characterization of hard times is wrong. And if I get enough of those, let's say the barrier is five. If I get five of those, we will devote another episode to airing your opinions and and having a little dialogue about it. Fair enough? All you oh, I love that. That's a great Fair idea. Enough. I wonder if that will happen. The email address, <laughs> the email address to send them to is adam at centerforlit.com, A-D-A-M at centerforlit.com cannot wait to hear what yeah you that's gonna be great i love it <laughs> well thanks for um for doing that dad thanks for the what are we reading that, that was is, awesome it's my pleasure I, I will say this in closing that the experience though not particularly um fulfilling literarily was as pleasurable as ever because i was in dickens's world 
And I was having a conversation with him. And I really enjoyed that part saying, Charles, Charles, what are you doing here? Oh man, chapter four was a bust. What are you going to do for me in chapter five? So that way I actually did kind of enjoy myself. And and frankly, I was looking forward to this conversation as well. So not, it was not time wasted. That's for sure. Okay. So do me this favor though. Um, and obviously those who love hard times are supposed to respond to us, but for those of us who haven't read hard times, but do want to read some Dickens, where should we go instead? I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, anywhere else. (laughs) <laughs> but I will give you, I'll give you, I'll limit myself to six other titles. No, I'm just kidding. You should read, you should read Little Dorrit. Okay. This year. You should okay. read Little Dorrit starting tomorrow. It should be the number one Dickens. That it's you the read. best Dickens novel in my view. And I think, I think mom's view too. Oh, I definitely agree. I also think that, um, that Great Expectations though it's the one everybody knows and some people are tempted to say since that's the one everyone knows that I'm not going to read that one. It's the one everyone knows for a reason, generally considered to be his masterpiece and it's Dickens at his very, very best. And then there's a, there's a third one that I think is worth reading that is kind of um, off-center of Dickens's um, mainstream masterpieces and that is A Tale of Two Cities, uh, which mm-hmm. is less subtle yeah. and less artistic than either Great Expectations or Little Dorrit. More kind of in the direction of hard times. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems to be accused often of yeah. the very thing you're accusing hard it times. It is. Yeah. It, you're right. You're right about that. But but socioeconomic and political questions are not the things that he's hammering us with. He's mm-hmm. hammering us with with moral and philosophical questions. And maybe it's a it's a weakness in me that I that I can't treat both of those subjects equally. But it seems to me that moral and philosophical questions come out sounding more artistic than mm. a ham-fisted treatment of political and, and economic ones. I don't know. But, but you should be warned that, that A Tale of Two Cities is a, little, is a little less subtle. It's a little bit more melodramatic than the other novels. But, oh, man, it's a tearjerker, too. I love it. I love it. Sweet. Well, there we have it. And I don't think I've ever seen this out of a Bibliophiles episode before. We have a um, stirring defense of someone's favorite author and a stiff warning against one of that very author's works. <laughs> that is a pretty impressive range of things to communicate to our listeners. Thank you for hanging with us. And we hope that you will respond to this episode because I would love to have a uh, round two conversation about hard times. But between now and our next meeting, read Little Dorrit, read A Tale of Two Cities, and read, what was the third one? Great, Great Expectations. expectations. Between now and the next time. That's right. That's right. Two two weeks. Read them all in the next two. Get going. Get going. (laughs) That's a tall order. Well, thank you all for your participation. I think we're going to let our listeners go off and do whatever it is they're going to do after listening to us. So until we meet again, my friends, happy reading. Happy Happy reading. reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.